Hi, this is the producer slash wife of the ghostropologist. I want to apologize in advance for the bad sound quality of this episode. It is not up to our normal standards. We had some technical difficulties. Again, I apologize. Hopefully, all of our issues will be sorted out before the ghostropologist returns in a month. More on that break in today's episode. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostropology. The show will feature ghost folklore, which includes both well-known stories and small personal encounters, all ultimately unverifiable, but all presented by people as true. I will tell you the story, after which I will discuss the elements of the story that I think are particularly interesting. While I don't know when, where, or how you were listening to this, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. A bit of housekeeping before I begin. I will be taking a short break to do research and ensure that I have materials for decent quality episodes going forward. This break will last for four weeks, so two episodes worth of time. But I will be back after that. I've already written most of episode 16, and I have a guest lined up to tell us some interesting stories. So what I'm working on will be good episodes. I anticipate that I will take similar breaks every now and again to give me a chance to catch up on my research and to allow me some writing breaks so that I am producing the best podcast that I can. Okay, now on to episode 15. Episode 15, Ghosts of California's Chinese Labor Force. Years ago, I was performing archaeological surveys in the oil fields surrounding Taft, California, a small city to the southwest of Bakersfield. One day, while working near McKittrick, a smaller town to the north of Taft, we encountered a set of three graves in an area behind a short chain-link fence. Gravestones stood above all three, and two of the graves had names and dates of birth and death associated with them. The third, however, was simply labeled Chinaman, with no date of birth, but a date of death of October 13, 1907. When I returned to the hotel that evening, I looked through our records to see if we had anything on this location, but I could find nothing. Some online searches found old newspaper articles that stated that William Glenn, an oil worker in this area, had become insane and attempted to stab someone described in the paper simply as the China Man on October 13, 1907. In all accounts, though, the Chinese man who was attacked is said to have escaped. Then Glenn turned the knife on himself, doing grievous harm. One account says that he disemboweled himself before he was shot by another oil worker. Of course, where there is little information, not even a name, tales will fill the void. One source I found makes no mention of William, but says that an unnamed cowboy and the Chinese man killed each other in a gunfight on that day in 1907. Other sources I found indicate that William Glenn had cut a Chinese laborer's topknot off as a prank, and that the laborer stabbed Glenn only to, in turn, be shot by Glenn's brother. On yet another site, I found a claim that the location is haunted, though it's never said who or what haunts the place, nor how they haunt it. And these stories don't seem to match the record from the newspapers of the time, which indicate that the unnamed Chinese man had escaped with his life, and... Of course, due to the standard racism and nationalism of the early 20th century, we don't even have a record of who this man was. He is permanently marked simply as 
Chinaman. Growing up in California, there are reminders everywhere of the Chinese presence in the 19th and early 20th century. The railroads here were built in large part by Chinese labor. Most cities, even the smaller ones, had Chinatown neighborhoods, and historic artifacts relating to Chinese workers are readily found everywhere from parklands to urban areas. In this episode, I bring you three stories related to Chinese laborers from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Like the case of the unnamed Chinese man buried near McKittrick, these stories present more void than presence, but they tell us something about how we Californians who are not of Asian descent perceive our own history. Story 1 blood on the roads of Camp Sylvester. Camp Sylvester seems like a quiet, idyllic spot in California's Sierra Nevadas. It is used as a getaway for groups ranging from schools to corporate team builders, and also serves vacationers who want to rent a cabin in this picturesque mountain spot. Most of the time, it seems as if there is nothing at all sinister or disturbing about the place, but this changes when it rains. As rainwater pours over the roads, a red liquid begins to appear causing the roads to, quite literally, run red with blood. It is the blood of the Chinese immigrants who were forced to work for low wages and near slave-like conditions while building California's railroads and working in the mining camps that once dotted the Sierra Nevadas. These laborers are gone now and unable to tell their stories, but their blood still runs when it rains at Camp Sylvester. commentary. When I was a kid, my school sponsored a yearly trip to science camp for the 6th, 7th, and 8th grade students at Camp Sylvester in Pinecrest, California. The goal of the week-long trip was, I presume, to teach kids about biology, ecology, and the natural sciences. But for the students, it was usually an excuse to engage in all manner of behavior that, while usually safe, they couldn't get away with at home or on school grounds. My own experiences at the camp were abysmal, owing to a combination of my various childhood social problems and two camp counselors who thought that getting younger kids to beat each other up was fun. My older sister, by contrast, greatly enjoyed it and eventually became a counselor there herself. As often happens when a group of preteen and early teen kids get together in an isolated place with minimal adult supervision, much of the social activity between the kids at the camp revolved around scaring the crap out of each other. One night, I recall a group of girls engaging in a Bloody Mary ritual in the girls' restroom, resulting in one of them becoming hysterical. The adult chaperones had to be brought out to deal with the situation, and there was serious talk of sending the girl home because of her rather excited state. And there were, of course, many ghost stories, most of them told by the camp counselors around the campfires at night or in the dining hall during dinner. The story of the blood appearing on the roads was a favorite, and stuck in our minds, I suspect, largely because most of us had only recently been learning about the use of Chinese labor in building the railroads and in mining. And so, when it rained, we were both horrified and fascinated to see the blood running along the roads. Of course, there was nothing supernatural about the red. This portion of the Sierra Nevadas is covered in high iron clays, and the red was due to nothing more sinister than the water moving these sediments across the road during and immediately following a rainstorm. Anyone who looked closely enough would even see that it was more of an orange than a red. Still, 
For a bunch of preteens stuck inside on a rainy day, the blood of wronged laborers makes for an evocative image. All the more so as part of our education in California history included reading about gold mine and railroad labor, which were often supplied by Chinese immigrants. California has a reputation these days for being very far to the left, but the truth is that much of the state is made up of rural areas and small cities where there is a lot of right-wing thought. And my childhood hometown, a fairly conservative place with a nativist anti-immigrant streak, was one such place. But even there, everyone, adults and children alike, agreed that the lot of the Chinese laborers was undeservedly miserable. It seems only natural that the misery was reflected in the stories that we told each other. Story 2. Borax Man The second story today comes from an unknown source, though I found out about it through an entry by Brian Dunning on the Skeptablog. This story is from Death Valley and is about a restless spirit known as the Borax Man. The text, which Mr. Dunning captured in a photograph he had taken from a book found at one of the maintained cabins at Death Valley National Park, is as follows. Quote, in the late 1800s, borax mining was the principal business in Death Valley. Many Chinese laborers were employed in the borax mills. Lumps of borax called cotton ball were scraped from the valley floor, crushed, and boiled in open vats made from adobe. This purified and crystallized the valuable chemical so it could be transported and marketed. In 1885, a seven-foot, seven-inch tall Chinaman named Tong Yu was working at the Harmony Borax Works when he accidentally fell or was pushed into one of the large open vats of boiling borax. Workers fought to pull him out, but Tong's entire body was horribly burned, and his flesh was deeply saturated with the caustic borax. He was brought into the living quarters and a doctor was sent for. By the time the doctor arrived the next morning, Tong Yu was nowhere to be found. During the night, he must have wandered away alone, perhaps in agonized madness. Today, visitors to the park often report a tall, thin, distant figure on the salt pan under the moonlight. Sometimes the wind plays tricks on the ears, sounding almost like a mournful cry. In 1974, a party of park rangers chased the figure on foot, but could not get close. The borax man seemed to melt right back into the plane he had come from. Unquote. Commentary. Dunning states that he had photographed these pages out of a book, but did not photograph the cover or title page, so he doesn't know what the book is and asks his readers if any of them may know. I would ask the same of you, my listeners. If you happen to have seen this story in a book that you have or have access to, please let me know the title. Email me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. Now, I have some questions about the facilities used to boil the borax. Adobe is a clay and therefore, as I understand it, would melt into any liquid being boiled within a container made from it. One of the reasons why the adobe missions that were such a significant part of early California history were whitewashed was because doing so kept the rain off the walls, thus protecting the unfired bricks from water. I spent a small portion of my early archaeology career digging through the remains of melted adobe structures at historic era sites, where the whitewash had long since flaked away, 
And I have to tell you, it was dense, homogenous, and not fun to try to get through with a shovel. Still, it may be that boiling the water hardened the adobe, or that the mix of water and borax somehow preserved it, or for that matter, perhaps they actually fired these bricks and they weren't adobe of the same sort that I'd know from the missions. I don't know. It may also be that there was a liner of some sort, likely metal, that protected the adobe from the liquid. This story is an excellent, but also very typical, example of a rural ghost story. These stories can almost be written by formula. Person associated with an important local event or industry is killed or mortally wounded as a result of some tragedy or malfeasance on someone's part. That person dies, but in a way that leaves some ambiguity. The person, or more often, an ambiguous form thought to be that person is seen throughout the region, but attempts to approach the figure result in a wild goose chase with nothing ever being found. There are two elements of this story that I find particularly striking, though. The gruesome form of the death would be horrifying by itself, with a combination of boiling liquid and caustic compound likely leaving truly horrific injuries. Knowing what I do about the heat to which borax was heated and the nature of the chemical, this is one of the more grotesque industrial accidents I can imagine. Even without a ghost story, that would be enough to spark some urban legends right there. The second has to do with the dynamics of Chinese labor in California during the late 19th and early 20th century, and the wind sounding like a mournful cry. California was in need of labor, and while workers did come from around the country, and indeed the world, one of the most reliable sources for cheap labor was Asian immigrants. The immigrants from various parts of Asia would form work crews and function quite differently from each other as teams. So work crews of Japanese immigrants would work differently from teams of Chinese immigrants who would, in turn, work differently than groups of Filipino immigrants. Shifting dynamics in global politics, as well as U.S. involvement in various wars in Asia as the 20th century moved on, resulted in various waves of immigrants from different parts of Asia. And by turns, each of the many nationalities, Japanese, Chinese, Filipino, Hmong, Vietnamese, Korean, Laotian, and so on, each had a different period during which their immigration was most common. Regardless of the overall demographics, the construction of the railroads and the work of mining is most often associated with Chinese laborers in the minds of most Californians. During the late 19th and early 20th centuries, federal immigration policies would often welcome male workers while discouraging families and preventing non-Europeans from becoming naturalized citizens, thus preventing people from settling down in the U.S., and anti-miscegenation laws barred Asian workers from marrying non-Asian women. Shifts in the immigration laws often made it difficult for Asian workers to re-enter the U.S. after leaving, and as a result, workers who were hoping to make money would find themselves stuck in the U.S. for decades as part of a community of bachelors, with no prospects for a family. Many of the more common lascivious claims made in the tabloid press about the Chinese community in the U.S. regarding alcohol and drug abuse, as well as the soliciting of prostitutes, in addition to typically being highly exaggerated, also seems to indicate that depression, and hence self-medicating, was probably common. The hiring of prostitutes, as scandalous as that would have been to the Victorian-era readers of newspapers, seems inevitable when the laws were geared towards preventing this largely bachelor workforce from forming and maintaining the sorts of romantic and sexual relationships that most people take for granted. The Asian workers were forced to live a particular lifestyle by law, and then they were demonized for the lifestyle that had been forced upon them. And so the wind sounding like a mournful cry makes sense to me. Most people who grew up in California learned about the railroad and mining camps in elementary school, 
And whether the teacher emphasized it or not, these places sounded horrifying. It was something we all knew about. And, as noted previously, we even created our own myths, such as the blood at Camp Sylvester that reflected the feelings of guilt and sadness. When we learned about the often overly racist and specific laws that pertain to immigrants from Asia, we felt bad, but it was an abstract badness. An eternity spent emanating mournful cries in the afterlife is, perhaps, the saddest yet truest expression of the despair that comes from being a community that is never quite at home. It would be a wonder if that detail didn't make its way into some of our supernatural folklore. I would like to share one last story with you. This one will sound familiar to our regular listeners, but listen through. The Abalone Fisherman On a beach in Monterey, a Chinese man had been collecting abalone from the intertidal zone and found a huge abalone stuck quite firmly to a rock. He used his pry bar to try to get it loose, and feeling that he was nearly there, he put his hand underneath the abalone to pry it off, only to find that the shellfish's suctioning foot was re-adhering to the rock and trapping his hand beneath it. The pry bar now out of reach, the man watched helplessly as the water slowly climbed the beach, and he was drowned under the high tide. His body was eventually recovered. Visitors to the area report hearing the mournful wailing of a man, someone deep in misery, but then seeing nobody there. This cry is said to come from the spirit of the abalone fisherman. Commentary Episode 8 includes a nearly identical story, but it was set on Santa Cruz Island, not in Monterey, and told that the man had cut off his own hand just in time to escape the rising tide, but weakness due to loss of blood caused him to lose consciousness, and he collapsed and drowned. The Santa Cruz Island version of the story also says that a man in traditional Chinese workers' clothes can be seen wandering the beach looking for his hand. In researching an upcoming episode, I found that Monterey folklore collector Randall Reinstadt collected a nearly identical story in the 1970s, the one that I have just relayed. And most of the same elements are there, but this man doesn't cut off his hand, and he is heard, but not seen. His mournful cries echo that of the man from the borax processing facility, but no specter or apparition is reported here. Though the stories presented in this episode portray, to some extent, real miseries faced by the Chinese and other Asian workers in California, they also reduce the Chinese workers to symbols of sorrow rather than individuals with distinct identities. That the same abalone fisherman story is told, in nearly identical form, at two different locations further reinforces the symbolic nature of these stories, while also showing how little they are rooted in individuals or even specific communities. Reinstadt even finishes his telling by stating that it is unknown whether the story is true, if an abalone fisherman ever died in this manner. Ironically, the inconsistent story, or rather multiple conflicting stories, of the Chinaman grave near McKittrick has a similar effect. We not only lack a name, but any real knowledge of who the person was, how they died, or why they died. This is, unfortunately, typical of much of the history of individual Chinese immigrants to California. The bloody roads of Camp Sylvester, the nameless giant who wanders the desert, even the abalone fishermen, 
while their tales are spookier than that of the nameless man in the grave, they are similar. Essentially anonymous people who left behind something to intrigue us, but who were not known by the dominant population of their time, and therefore are not known now to us. The grave is unnamed and unknown, intellectually rather than emotionally tragic. Thank you for joining me. If you have heard a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail.com. Also, please visit the Ghostthropology blog for transcripts, show notes, and more information at kmmamedia.com. That's kmmamedia.com. Until next time, have a wonderfully spooky night. Spooky!